Hello, everybody. This is Anthony Harris again with my podcast of Looking Back, Moving Forward. I am so glad that you were able to join us today, and I have a, an exceptional program today. I, I think all my programs are good, but this one is, is exceptionally uh, good because it features an aspect of something that I've been talking about for a while about systemic racism. And the gentleman that I have with me today to, to lead us in that discussion, and, I, and we're just going to have, a dis, as I said, as, as, just a discussion about it. He's an expert in the field, and he's going to share some things with us that I think we need to know. But before he does, I want to give you his background. Uh, Dr. Harvey L. White is an accomplished scholar, experienced administrator, and distinguished public service professional. He's held a variety of high-level government and university administrative positions. He served as a city manager, community development specialist, director of urban and regional planning, and coordinator of public administration degrees as an academic dean. He is often engaged as a management consultant in public sector service delivery issues. He's consulted, lectured, and led research projects in more than 60, that's it folks, 60 African, Asian, and Caribbean countries. And by the way, I was on some of those trips with him, but we, we won't get into that. <laughs> He's an internationally uh, renowned um, expert in the field and has done quite a bit. And uh, Dr. White and I were Kellogg Fellows, gosh, what, 30-something years ago, and we traveled to, to Africa a couple of times together. But his, his, his travel experience is far, far greater than mine. We are privileged to have him with us. He's an expert in program evaluation, performance management, and talent management. Dr. White has authored or co-authored five books and more than 60 other publications on public sector issues. His professional activities include editorship of the Journal of Public Management and Social Policy. He was the president of the National Conference of Minority Public Administrators, or called COMPA. And get this, folks, he was the president of the American Society for Public Administration. That's the big organization for public administrators. And he's also a fellow in the National Academy of Public Administration. Dr. White is founder and past director of the Gulf Coast Center for Healthy Communities. Under his leadership, the center developed collaborative partnerships with more than 20 community-based organizations to address health and community development issues and they were able to raise more than $8 million to support an array of innovative programs. And he is founder and past general chair of, and this is a very impressive organization, CIMPAD. It stands for the Consortium for International Management Policy and Development. And if you will Google CIMPAD, it will, it will give you some more background on all the different countries that uh, that are part of this consortium, and Dr. White started this, this group. Education-wise, he has a bachelor's degree in political science from North Carolina Central in, in 1972. His master's is in 78 from East Carolina, and his PhD in political science came in 1985 at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Um, currently, he is associate director of the Joseph R. Biden Junior School of Public Policy and Administration at the University of Delaware. Yeah, that's the same Joe Biden who's running for president. That's his. That's his. Uh, uh, that's his state, and that's the the. It's named for him. He is professor of public policy and administration at the University of Delaware, and he's also 
Associate Professor Emeritus of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. And I could go on and on about some things, but as I was saying earlier, uh, Dr. White and I were members of Group 9 of the Kellogg National Fellowship Program, and that's where he and I first met, and we've been friends uh, since that time. I've followed his career. I have just been so proud of all the things that he has done at the national level, at the international level. He is well-respected in the field of public administration, and, and I'm just delighted. I, and I also say he is my frat brother, too. And people may be wondering, what frat is that? Well, <laughs> shall we just say, we prefer the black and gold. Nothing against purple and gold or red and white or blue and white. Those organizations are fantastic, too. But Dr. White and I are both alphabet. So thank you, Dr. White, for being here. I appreciate it, sir. And um, I know you bring, again, some some expertise and some knowledge that we need to hear about. And when, I want to get into this because I, there's an area you like for us to think about that we don't typically think about when it comes to systemic racism. In, in some past episodes of my podcast, I've talked about how the economic system, how the educational system, how the medical system, how just the political system, how all of those systems can either individually or in combination with one another cause the oppression, the systematic oppression of black people and other communities of color. But you, you bring, you bring a, a, another layer to that, another aspect to that, and that is the impact of artificial intelligence or AI on, on this, how that fits into the systemic racism. And, and I just want you to, I wanna do two things. I want you to just give us a general background for those who don't, don't understand what AI is. And you've been researching this area for a long time. And then specifically, as, as the black community and as, as, as people of color, what are some things we should understand about that and what impact is it going to have on us? Thank you, Dr. Harris. Uh, I have followed your career uh, as well, and I'm extremely proud of the things you've done and you're doing this podcast, an example of that. Uh, so we have a mutual admiration society here. Uh, so thank you for inviting me. So let me respond. Uh, about AI. Artificial intelligence is transforming government, is transforming the private sector, is trans transforming the nonprofit sector, is transforming even the educational uh, sector, sector as well. It's actually eliminating or making us more efficient in how we do things. Is any task that's routine, uh, that's going to be replaced in the future of artificial intelligence. Even agriculture, for example, it's being industrialized. The mining industry uh, is being uh, overtaken by artificial intelligence. It's eliminating the need for humans to be exposed to hazardous circumstances and hazardous conditions. The argument is, and the expectation is, it's going to elim eliminate human beings from having to engage in certain types of strenuous labor. Uh, it's going to liberate us to do more exciting and dynamic things at the intellectual level, at the artistic level, at the scientific level, because machines and robots are gonna be doing the work that we used to do. That's phenomenal, that's exciting. It, it speaks to what the possibilities are. There are also challenges, and while I would not discourage uh, the use of artificial intelligence, we need to understand how it's going to impact uh, communities differentially. And so one of the things that we need to be aware of is that one, the data that's driving artificial intelligence 
is called big data. And everybody's trying to now become involved in big data, the generation of big data. The problem is data is not neutral. The data, the person who designs the instrument that collects the data and put his or her values into that instrument. And consequently, that instrument is going to re reflect that person's preferences and priorities and prejudices. And so right now, the problem is communities of color are not involved in the generation of the data. And that becomes a big issue. Data is being generated on us, but it's not being generated by us. And so we have to get involved in the generation of the big data. We have to be involved in the, the manipulation of the big data, the analysis of the big data. We're absent from that. So where's the gap there? Why, why is that disconnect going on between who's gathering the data and who's designing the, the data and, and on who is going to be impacted? Government is, is collecting data. Uh, Facebook, Amazon, it has the potential to do a lot of things. So everybody wants as much data as possible. Uh, if I go back to government, I can say that one of the things that's going to happen is that government is going to be able to deliver goods and services based upon our preferences. The private sector is doing the same thing. That's why right now, if I go on my computer and I click on an interest in a faucet, there'll be 20 faucets will pop up. Yes. And every time I turn on my computer for the next 20 days, yeah. it's going to pop up. <laughs> the yeah. same thing's happened to me. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I was doing some searches looking for a file cabinet. Mm -hmm. And man, let me tell you, it's like every time I log on to Facebook or wherever, I get these ads popping up from Office Depot and other places trying to remind me. And I've already bought the dat gum thing. I don't need it anymore. I don't need their ad anymore. But they, they know what I've been searching for. Exactly. Right? Capture that. Yes. So that's the goal is to capture as much data as possible. So that's, that's a commercial aspect of it. Government is doing the same thing. Another aspect of it, though, is more design for things like how are we going to create robots and what data is going to go into those robots, uh, how are they going to respond intellectually. Uh, so that's being a very systemic or systematic approach to capturing data that's going to go into the machines that are going to, in fact, do all that labor out there. And so they're looking at how people do different kinds of things right now. Now, the, when we say, why is that a problem? One is, if we are not collecting the data, one, we have no control on how we're going to be reflecting the data. Uh, I was in a lecture once, and I was told that if you happen to be from a certain ethnic group, from a certain tribe in, the, in, in South Africa, and you walk down the street of New York, you're 90% more likely to get hit by an autonomously driven automobile. Because the data that goes into the program that automobile does not reflect the characteristics of that person from that particular ethnic group in South Africa. That's just how severe it might be, that if we don't have some input into the data, we're going to be excluded. Wait, or, wait, wait. Now, let's go back to the car again, this okay. autonomously driven car, which means that some, some machine is driving this car, right? Yes. Okay. And, and if this data and this profile of, of a pedestrian does not include people who may look like you or me or somebody from South Africa, that car may hit that guy. 
And that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. me. That car would more likely. Well, because they don't recognize that as, because if it's a dark-skinned person, they don't recognize that as, this is something, oh, I need to slow down for. If right. it's, say, a Caucasian or a light-skinned person, it recognizes that as. It could be height, weight. It could be a variety of characteristics that describe what a human being looks like. Gender is also an issue. Gender. Now, the other aspects of that is, those cars are going to have, those vehicles are going to have decision-making authority. If it's driving and there's about to be an accident, it will have to make a decision, do I hit this person or do I hit that person? And built into that automobile will be biases or preferences as to who should live or who should be avoided. Okay, let's bring this down to, you got a, a black person and a white person facing this autonomously driven car, <laughs> chances are the black guy's going to get hit. Probably, or it could be a person who is older versus yeah. a person who is young. Somebody who doesn't fit the profile, who was not at the table when they designed all this stuff. Exactly. And so that's the, the absence. We're not involved at the table in designing or creating the data that's going to be the foundation for the knowledge that's going to form the basis for artificial intelligence. And we're talking about the car now, but it, it's in healthcare. Right now, uh, many decisions are made right now in healthcare by artificial intelligence. Who is going to get what medicine? Who's going to receive that operation? Those kinds of decisions right now being made in healthcare. So it's healthcare. I mentioned it's in agriculture, it's in mining, it's in every industry. Even deciding about insurance, the rates for insurance right now. The computer will look at, or artificial intelligence will look at, where are all the accidents? Well, if all the accidents, <coughs> excuse me, are in the urban area, the insurance rate is gonna be higher in urban areas. Logical, right? More accidents occur in urban areas. If I program the data to say, okay, I'm gonna base my rate on where the accidents are, it's gonna be the inner city where black people live. Now, it does not take into account that most of the people driving in the inner city are from the suburbs and they're causing an accident and not the people living in the city. Right. So consequently then, you get penalized if you live in the inner city, even though you're not the cause of the accident. If you're not in, involved in generating the data, analyzing the data, and then programming the data into the artificial intelligence, you're going to be more likely created in a disparate way. And so it's extremely important then that we become involved in generating data that's going to affect us, whether we're talking about it at the local level or the global level, we need to be involved in generating that data, analyzing that data, and then program that data into artificial intelligence. So, so how does that, how's that happening? All right. I mean, the, 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 the horse is out of the barn, as they, speak, as the they say. The, it's, it's, this thing is moving, and we have we haven't caught up because we don't know about it or we are not doing enough to prepare people in our colleges and universities or even public schools to, to be prepared to take on some of these jobs that, uh, like Facebook and so forth. Well, see, we are talking about STEM and STEM is extremely important, but it's not just STEM. In many instances, you don't have to have a college degree to be involved in generating big data. Most of the people who do computer services and uh, programming 
are people who learn that growing up. If you go to uh, Best Buy, the people services those that data, they're not college grads. So that's one avenue that we need to get more of our people involved in. Let them understand, hey, we, we want you to have a college degree, we want you to have a graduate degree, but you don't necessarily have to have one uh, to get involved in that. So that's one aspect, just get people involved, thinking about understanding how important the data, the big data is, because everybody's trying to get those big data sets. And we need to be involved in that. We need to understand how they're generated uh, or created. We need to understand how they're organized. And then we need to understand how they're used. So that's a, a correction. The other side of that then is, once that data goes into artificial intelligence, they go into robotics. We're not involved in robotics. We're not involved, I won't say not, we're not involved in a major way. We're still on the fringe. We're not building the robotics. We're not programming robotics. We're not servicing the robotics. So again, we're being left out in that field. And so you don't have to have an engineering degree. Uh, you need to understand computers but you don't have to have an engineering degree to get involved in robotics. You know, kids can get kits and learn how to build robots right now. So we need to get our, our young people involved in that field. And we want them to go to graduate school or college, graduate school, get PhDs, but we want them involved at every level. Now that's on the artificial intelligence generation side. Uh, it's on the artificial intelligence uh, tool making in terms of robots service a robot or building those robots and service the robots. There's another side to artificial intelligence though that is extremely dis uh, concerning or discerning to, to, as well. Artificial intelligence it, is going to displace its argued up to a third of the population right now. It's going to replace anything that's done in a routine manner. Uh, people who are right now working some in roofing, for example, they say artificial intelligence is going to be able to put a roof on a house. Mm. Uh, crops are going to be harvested, they say, with artificial intelligence. Cars, we just mentioned the autonomous vehicle. The people, if you go to New York or Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, most of the drivers of those cars are people of color, mostly African Americans. It's going to put people out of work. And so if, you, if, if they're going to put African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, out of work, what are we going to be doing? If we're not involved in generating the data, we're not involved in analyzing data, we're not involved in building the robots, we're not involved in servicing the robots, what are we going to do? So two things are happening. One is there's going to be a negative impact on us if we're not involved in the generation. Secondly, there's going to be a negative impact in terms of the jobs that we're going to lose. So we have to now, can't wait until all of those autonomous vehicles. They're already talking about, they're testing those vehicles right now. And the major buyers of those initially are gonna be the taxi companies. It's gonna be Uber. Those are gonna be the major initial buyers. That's gonna put a lot of people out of work. Uh, if you're talking about farming, farming is already a commercial enterprise. Uh, it's gonna put people out of work. So it's gonna have a major disproportionate impact on putting people of color out of work and we're not going into the service side. The argument is that artificial intelligence is going to generate as many jobs as it eliminates, but it's gonna eliminate them on the data side, uh, the production side for robots and the service in the robots. And those folks who are on the, on the side of manual labor, 
uh, things that can be done by robots, they're going to be pushed out. And unless we then find a way to push people of color, or encourage people of color to go into the production side of artificial intelligence all the way through to the production of robot, robots, we're going to have mass unemployment disproportionately. Now, again, we already have 30 million people out of work. Uh, that's going to be a major additional impact on us if we're not very careful in terms of artificial intelligence. What's the end game here? I mean, it sounds like somebody is sitting around in a conference room someplace, a conference table, and designing these things or in a lab. What what attention, what concerns do they express? Or does it maybe maybe I know I know the answer to this. What's the end game? Are they willing to sacrifice these humans who may not have the skills, who may not have the resources to to uh, buy those skills? Are they going to just say, "All right, we have a group of people who are going to be permanently an underclass. They're not going to." Um, be able to, that, that mobility is not there unless they decide to go back and learn how to service robots. Because one of the things that I see, and this is probably an application, but it's not robots. You know, you go to the grocery store and you don't have to have a human to check you out, right? Well, that's artificial intelligence, yes. You, you, you scan, and, and I've always believed, man, I'm here at this self-checkout aisle Am I contributing to the loss of somebody's employment? <laughs> I probably am, right? It's only the beginning. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that, I think everybody can relate to that. You know, when you, you go to that, that express checkout where you don't, I mean, they always have, a, I guess they say, we have a human down at the end just in case exactly. they're rich in the, in the uh, computer system. They can come down and or if you're buying some, uh, some alcohol, uh, they, they check your ID and all, but man, I tell you that. In the future, the robot, we would do that too. <laughs> oh, man, golly. All artificial intelligence, robotics. Your question is, what is the end game? Yeah. Which relates to my field of public administration, public policy. Right now, the end game is, how can I minimize my costs, increase my efficiency, in terms of revenue coming in, and then how can I make more money? Mm -hmm. And so for the people who are engaged or who will be buying these or engaged in artificial intelligence, is it intentionally saying, hey, we're going to discriminate against people of color? No, it's we're gonna make as much money as we can. And what's happening is the more we go with artificial intelligence, the greater the transfer of wealth is from the working class, the middle class, to the elites because they are the ones that own the means of production. And so what you're doing is right now, and the, the argument, and I've taught HR, I've taught uh, talent management, we always used to start off by saying the greatest cost in an organization is always the human talent or the human resource, the greatest cost. And so if you're trying to make more money, the goal is then is to minimize the cost. And so if you can replace a human being with a robot who doesn't need a break, who doesn't need health insurance, who doesn't need social security. Who's not going to join a union. I'm sorry? Who's not going to join a union. Not going to join a union. Then the robot, in fact, is what you're going to get. 
uh, one of the things I gave a lecture not too long ago in this area, and I pointed out in healthcare, even in Rwanda, they've now uh, ordered during this COVID-19 virus, five artificial robots that, that actually wait on patients, take that temperature, serve them meals. And they said those five robots are replacing like 75 people. Now it's temporarily, but they are saying, hey, gee, we might want to do this permanently. So if, if robots can do that, uh, the people who clean the floors, serve the meals, right now you have uh, robotic bartenders that can do the work of five human bartenders. Uh, you have a chef right now uh, that can cook a meal quicker than a human being and cook it more precisely to a recipe than a human being. So those kinds of things are happening right now because it's eliminating that cost of a human being. Now the initial investment is gonna be high, but the long-term investment is gonna produce more revenue for the owners of the means of production. So they're looking at it simply from a financial point of view. Now, somehow we have to make them look at it from a humanistic point of view. I think that becomes government's role, that becomes public policy role, that becomes our role. And so I think we have to, in fact, put pressure on governments. Uh, one, if you want to say we, we live in a capitalist society, we'll let the means of production determine what happens, we then have to say, okay, but well, we have to train the human talent. Otherwise, you're going to have all of these people out there who are dependent. Right. And when I talk about this, I talk about things like a social contract that when we talk about the social contract the government has with the people, mm -hmm. that social contract is the ultimate contract. It's greater than any contract, it's more important than any corporation because we come together for the good of the common good. Common good, yes. If that corporation is not doing what's for the common good, then government has not only a right, but a responsibility to intervene. And if it doesn't, people have a right to change the government. Yes. And so there that's the people, There are people who, who believe that the government should just stay out of it, right? And let the let the market forces determine the the winners and the losers, the haves and the have-nots. And, and that thing has gone on such a long time until at some point people have to realize this isn't working. And, and the with, government has never stayed out of it. Right. Think about what happened uh, in 2008. General Motors was going bankrupt. The government bailed them out. The right. government bailed Wall Street out. Government has always got involved. And so when people say, oh, let the market work, the market has never worked uh, because government has always bailed the market out. Um, well, the way I heard it one time is that uh, companies and corporations like to socialize their losses and capitalize their, their exactly. profits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it sounds to me like, and maybe you used this term earlier, it is almost like a, another industrial revolution because you look at the turn of the 20th century with the, with the first industrial revolution with people coming off of the farms and going to the big cities and having to learn these, this, this technology and these machines and so forth. Some people got left behind. Some people right. just uh, couldn't do it. Is that, is that a similar kind of it direction you think we're going? Exactly. It, it is referred to as the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth one. I missed a couple of them. <laughs> okay. Fourth industrial revolution. I, I do a piece on talent management about those, okay. those, those pieces, but 
it's said that it's going to be driven by artificial intelligence. And, it's, and, it's, and artificial intelligence is a tool. It's not inherently good or bad. Right. But if you use the tool inappropriately or discriminately, it has negative ramifications. And so what the goal should be by society is to make sure that everybody benefits from the application of artificial intelligence. Now, the other side of it is, is that technology that's being used right now by corporations, the biggest investment in research and development does not come from the private sector. If we take right now the, the efforts to create a drug so that we can become you know, vaccinated from COVID-19, right? Government is investing money right. out there in those corporations to do that. They're gonna get compensated. Either directly or indirectly, the government's gonna purchase millions of doses of it, mm -hmm. vaccine. So government is the biggest investor in research and development. The technology that comes out of that through our universities, uh, through our research institute, NIH, uh, the whole slew of research institute, that information is shared and the private sector then uses that, that information to create products. That's okay. What happens though is, is when we start saying, okay, I created this from scratch. Nothing is created from scratch. That the computer that we are involved in right now as we have this discussion was created by government investment. Mm -hmm. The internet, the military created the internet and then made it and shared it. GPS. <laughs> exactly. So we, a corporation then has a social responsibility because it's using knowledge that is the product of social creation, government. And so it's Tax not that- Taxpayer money, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. I was just say taxpayer money. I mean, no, citizens exactly. pay for that. I mean, it, so it, we need, we can and should hold them accountable to make sure that they, in fact, do not do things that are detrimental to the common good or to the vast majority of society. Yeah. So I think that's part of what we can do. But I think public policy is going to be necessary. But also, I think we need to also become enlightened enough to understand how things are going to affect us. Yeah. I think that's the piece that I think your podcast is going to help you and others start talking about this thing out there called artificial intelligence and 10, 15 years from now, what the impact is going to be on our communities. We can't wait. We have to get engaged now. Let's start demanding become involved in the generation of the big data, uh, the, the analysis of the big data. Uh, we need to demand that our children and our schools and our universities are taught the skills necessary to come involved in it. Almost every university now are creating centers on big data. Uh, my university has hired uh, about seven people all total in different parts, and they're creating these institutes around the universe to deal with big data because that's the future and that's the foundation of artificial intelligence. And so we have to become involved and understand that it's going to have a tremendous impact on us. Well, you have issued a clarion call, I think, uh, Reverend White, um, because most people don't think about this, the the implications of it and the the consequences involved in it. And I, I'm, I'm so pleased, I'm so delighted that you have shed some light on something that again, most people don't think about. And, and nobody can say, well, artificial intelligence, that's something for white folks to, to be interested in. 
I'm not going to, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh, yes, it does, right? Yeah. And, and if you want to be a part of this, this movement, this direction that our economy is taking in, in our technology and, and, and all those things, I think we have to prepare young people at an early age. And I, and, and I think that's my next question to you is that when should we start intervening? When should we start talking to young people? I, I, I'm guessing that high school and college is almost too late, but it's never too late. But sometimes, somehow we've got to start early, right? Exactly. We have to. I would say when we start buying toys for kids, the electronic toys, right. that's the time to start. Let <laughs> them start building those toys and understanding the mechanism of those toys. It's not just something to play with. Yeah. but it's a learning instrument. Right. And, and I think that's, that's the time to start as early as possible. Uh, we need to, you know, data coding. We need to start our kids as young as possible understanding how to code data. Uh, we need to get them involved. Not only that, we can't depend, I think, on our schools. Be great if we could. We can't depend on the government. We're going to have to do it at the household level, our community level. The church gonna, level, the churches and the communities, exactly. and those places. Yes, we need the clarion call to go out to all communities to understand how this is going to impact us, uh, because it is. Uh, you talked about going to the supermarket. Certainly, uh, the cashiers won't be there. There might be one, as you point out, but they're going to be doing artificial intelligence. Uh, the taxi cabs won't be there. Uh, the roofers won't be there. Uh, even accounting is going to be affected. Bookkeeping is going to be done artificially intelligently. Even HR uh, right now is already using artificial intelligence to screen applications. You put in the criteria, say, give me people fit this category. And that's done by artificial intelligence. So, so much is already being done that, that's affecting us that we don't know. And whether we like it or not, we can say this is something uh, that European Americans or white people are doing. If you think like that, that's one thing, but that will not excuse you from being affected by it. And if it's going to affect you, you need to try and have some control over how it's going to affect you and make sure that, that the impact is not negative and that we have some control over the data on us. We have some, some control over the analysis and we have some control over how those robots and those artificial intelligence systems see us because if we're not involved then putting our values into artificial intelligence, then artificial intelligence would not value us. Uh, As you said, it's not neutral. It's not neutral. <laughs> it's not neutral. And, and we have a role to play. We have some, uh, the ability to influence this stuff. And we have to start thinking strategically and tactically about how do we get into that meeting? How do we get into that industry? How do we get into that class? Like you said, maybe it's not the curriculums in the schools, I don't think, give a lot of attention to that. Maybe in some school districts, uh, particularly affluent school districts, they perhaps do that. But somebody, if, you know, what I've heard you say, what I got most out of what you shared with me tonight, and I hope my listeners have as well, is that there, there's a movement going on, the train has left the station, the horse is out of the barn, whatever metaphor you want to use, things are changing, things are moving. And, and if you don't know 
that it's not going on. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know that this is being done either with intent or maybe it's unwitting, they, they don't really intend to oppress black people and other people of color. But it's the fact is, it's, now. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we've got to, we've got to, number one, raise our awareness of this, because if we're not aware of it, there's not a whole lot that we can do, or, or yeah, we can do it once we know about it, but then we have to have the, the mechanisms and the procedures and the processes and the resources and the organization to help these youngsters get to that, because you and I, at a point in our careers and our lives, man, we, I'm probably not going to learn a whole lot about robots and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be building it, but I, well, we can spread the word. I think yeah. the education that this is important is yes. going to impact us. You know, I often tell my students that I cannot envision what instrument or what technology is going to affect the lives of my children 10, 15 years from now. And I use the example. I started off with a manual typewriter. I went from a manual typewriter to an electronic gotcha. typewriter that could type a whole, a whole paragraph. Then I went from an electric typewriter to a, a typewriter that could hold a whole page. Now, now my phone, this phone that I have in my hand can do the work of a thousand typewriters. Yeah. If that's in my lifetime, I've seen that kind of progression in terms of technology, that's going to be even more overwhelming in the future. It used to be we could talk about the turnaround being every five, 10 years. We're talking about that knowledge being generated every 15 months. Wow. And so we have to get involved in the generation of that knowledge or not data being generated uh, every, every 15 months. It, it, it's, it's double every 15 months. And so we need to be involved in that. Uh, we need to be involved in not only generating it, but uh, analyzing it and understanding how it's going to impact us. So I think our greatest role, uh, Dr. Harris, is to get the word out just how important it is for us to become engaged in this aspect of the marketplace. And, and, and it's going to affect every aspect. Uh, as I said, medicine, farming, mining, uh, every aspect of our life will be affected by this artificial intelligence, whether we like it or not. Uh, and, I, and I thank you for being here. And to say that really doesn't quite capture my thoughts and feelings. I, I, again, I'm out there, I'm thinking about systemic racism, I'm thinking about the impact it has on people's health and their mm -hmm. mental well-being and looking at white privilege and all of those things. But here's an aspect of it that I didn't think about. In fact, when you sent me the email and said, I like to talk about artificial intelligence, I said, man, let me go do some research on that because I'm, I'm just not up on AI and how it affects black people and, and other communities of color. And what you've done with this program today, this episode, I think you have, you have shined a light on something that needs, that needs to come out of the darkness and, and, and see the light of day. And we're going to continue to talk about this. And I think those people listening to this, this particular episode, I believe they will start thinking some people will say, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Is there something that I need to do in my community? Is there something I need to do in my family? Is there something I can do in my church? Is there, do I need to go to a school board meeting and, and, and request or even demand that 
our kids learn about these things in the first, second, third grade, not wait until they're in college trying to figure all that stuff out. So I, you've been a blessing to me, brother. Well, let me share with you, since you, the, the topic is uh, racism. Yeah. One of the things that we can conclude and is, is proven, artificial intelligence can do a, a more effective and precise job of discriminating and being racist than even the human being can. Wow. That's and a... have no passion about it. Right. It just does it because we <laughs> have to do it. Right. And uh, if you get a chance, uh, there is a artificial intelligence uh, program that have actually created <clears throat> to interact with people. It actually started calling Barack Obama. It learned to call Barack Obama a monkey hmm. because it was interacting with people and yeah. it actually learned to be racist. Yeah. And it had no no need to hide it because yeah. it just did it. And so if you program in racism into artificial intelligence, it can do it more systematically and more effectively than human beings can. So that's another reason. So it does very much relate to the topic that you you're talking about because we have to be involved. Otherwise, it's going to be another structural, systematic, institutional racism that's going to affect us uh, programmed into the values out there and we have to get involved at a very early stage. So thank you for Absolutely. this. Thank you for me to be here. Man, you, you, have really, you, you have really touched on some things, and I am so grateful um, that you've agreed to do this tonight and you know, just shared stuff that most of us don't think about. And I really hope you, people understand the, the challenge he's issued, Dr. White has issued, and, and the clarion call and, and, and call to action of what we need to do as a community and as a, as a people. Otherwise, we're gonna be left behind again. And, and, and let's not say, well, I didn't know this was coming. I didn't know this was going on. Yeah, we, yeah, there are people who perhaps don't want you to know about it, but let me tell you, you've been listening to this podcast tonight, you can't leave this and say, hmm, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, you can say it, but now you, you have some information, you have some, uh, some data, perhaps some motivation to do some things. So I want to thank you once again, Harvey, for being here. You have, again, thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise on an issue that I really am glad my listeners are, are have a chance to, to hear you discuss. And folks, I'm going to end this tonight. This is a, a very um, entertaining and very informative uh, podcast tonight. Don't forget, Vote. I've told you before that I, I want to start and end each of my episodes with a challenge to you to vote. I didn't do it on the front end of this podcast, but I'm doing it now. Vote. Get registered. This election is, what, 60 days, less than 60 days away, and there's so much riding on, on what you do as a registered voter. And don't let anybody try to convince you that your vote doesn't mean anything, that it doesn't count, there's no difference in the two candidates. Please don't buy into that, that baloney because people will do everything they can to discourage you and to um, make you not want to go and vote. So please do that. That is it for this episode. Thank you so much. And we will be seeing you again next time. Thanks, Sam.